I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Waiting for you in the next hour, it's the author of a book about child-rearing who knows how to safely build a fire on a person's stomach, a skill she won't be teaching to her kids. It's a documentary filmmaker who once did a nude scene with a poet in a Bill Plimpton film, and it's a stand-up comedian who grew up in Oregon and has this to say about his home state. You can make up weird stuff about Oregon because there's actual true weird stuff about this place, like... Yeah, we don't have any sales tax, and you can't pump your own gas. You'll get in trouble if you pump your own gas. And if you get them to believe that, then you can start lying to them about other things. Like, yeah, until the 1970s, there was a spot in the state senate reserved for a wolf. It's true. It's, it's... Theater in Portland, Oregon. It's Livewire with Bebay Day by Day author Pamela Druckerman, documentary filmmaker Brian Lindstrom, comic Ian Carmel, and music from Sally Ford and the Sound Outside. It's all coming up on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hallmeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. We have comic Ian Carmel, who's going to watch the show, and then he's just going to give us his take on the whole thing at the end of the show. And of course, we also have music from our house band, led by Ralph Huntley. Thanks, guys. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to have filmmaker Brian Lindstrom on the show. And Brian's films are largely portraits of people who are struggling, like addicts or the recently incarcerated. But there's always hope in his films. But his latest film is possibly the toughest story he's had to tell. It is the story of James Chassie. And he was a sweet, artistic, schizophrenic man who fell through the cracks of our mental health system and unfortunately into the hands of some very poorly trained cops, uh, which seems to happen more and more to the mentally ill in this country. And when I say the mentally ill, a lot of you might imagine someone in a mental hospital or someone on the fringes of society like Chassie, but mental health issues may be more prevalent than you think they are. In a 2011 study, antidepressants were once again the most prescribed class of drugs in the United States, and antipsychotics weren't that far behind them. 
We are actually taking so many psychiatric drugs that they're starting to show up in streams and lakes near water treatment plants. And it's not just happening, it's not just happening in the US. I was in my car listening to All Things Considered the other day, as public radio hosts are required to do by law. Um, and Robert Siegel, you may have heard this, was talking about Swedish fish and not the candy. Um, he was talking about actual perch in streams in southern Sweden who had been swimming in water with enough benzodiazepines or anti-anxiety medication that it actually changed their behavior. So the drugs had passed through human bodies and, and a sewage treatment plant and made their way into the stream where the, where the schools of perch swam. And they were quoting scientists talking about how the fish they tested in that same concentration of drugs had lost their inhibitions. They were more active and less afraid to leave the school to feed. And I just imagined what must have been going through their little tiny fish brains. Like, they don't understand the concept of pharmaceuticals. All they know is that they woke up this morning more confident and self-assured than they've ever been in their tiny little perch lives. And they're just ready to take on the world on their own. You know, I imagine them turning into little animated Disney perch, you know, swimming away from the school, singing a song about how now things are going to be different, you know. I haven't seen enough of this stream. I never had the courage to break out on my own. But today's the day. I'm gonna find my place in this world It's time for me to make my mark I'm gonna eat every pond snail I see And, and then he just gets devoured by this huge bass, right? <laughs> because here's the thing Their natural instinct to stay with the school was right <laughs> That is why scientists are worried we may have medicated ourselves to the point that we actually are affecting the ecosystems of streams and lakes and giving wide-mouthed bass and other predators some additional very positive and frankly overconfident perch to feed on. <laughs> and the story also mentions fishes with, trace level, with traces of a low-level Valium-like drug were found off the coast of California. <laughs> Valium isn't necessary in the animal kingdom because when animals get agitated, it is because they are about to be eaten and not because someone just cut them off on the 405. <laughs> you know, I, I hope that our pharmaceutical companies can figure out a way to medicate people without also medicating rivers and streams. And I am sorry for the fish, but I do see one bright side in this story. And that's that if so many people are seeking psychiatric help that we're actually making Swedish perch more confident, then we might have reached the kind of tipping point that changes public perception and public policy. And even better, it might mean that mental illness is becoming something that we're no longer ashamed of. So in the future, when we see someone on the street like James Chassie, who's clearly lost his way, we can see a little bit of ourselves in him. And instead of acting like predators, we'll do some small thing to help bring him back into the school where he's safe. Thanks, Ralph. Thanks to Ralph Huntley, who, during intermission, helped me figure out that ridiculous song. <laughs> Our first guest tonight is a band that could easily be mistaken for 1950s rock and rollers if their lyrics didn't reference things like sunny day real estate, robots, and tall bikes. 
Lead singer Sally Ford's voice has been compared to Ella Fitzgerald and Bessie Smith, but when you hear it, you will know that it is distinctly her own. The band has opened on tour for the Avett Brothers. They've played with Mavis Staples at the Historic Egyptian Theater in Boise, Idaho, and they have appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman. And they're about to launch a U.S. tour with Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down, supporting their newest record, Untamed Beast. Please welcome Sally Ford and the Sound Outside to Livewire.
That was Sally Ford and the Sound Outside. Find their upcoming tour dates at sallyfordmusic.com. That's Sally with an I-E, not a Y, because there's nothing rock and roll about a Y. Welcome to Netflix. For information on your Netflix Instant account, press 1. Thank you for calling Netflix customer service. This is Cammy. Can I get your account information? Uh, 544-34561. Okay. Andy Bauer? Uh, yeah. Hi, Andy. What can I help you with today? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm watching something on Netflix Instant, and I'm having some trouble. Okay. I see that you're watching Season 4, Episode 19 of Numbers. Yeah, it's uh, very staticky sounding, and it's just it's very distracting. Okay, just a moment. Uh, anything else wrong? Uh, no, no, nothing else. Andy? Yeah? Can I ask you a personal question? Uh, sure. Well, I've just been glancing at your instant cue, and <laughs> your most recent views, and are you sure you're doing okay? What are, you, what are you asking? It's just, in the last three weeks, you've watched the complete series of Mad Men, The West Wing, Rizzoli and Isles, Charmed, According to Jim, and you're within a season of finishing numbers. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, no. It's the trajectory, Andy. Once you get to Rizzoli and Isles, this is clearly a cry for help. Uh, what do you mean? Well, According to Jim and Numbers are terrible shows. Okay. Andy, I'm going to level with you. You weren't having sound problems. No, I mean, no, I was. It was all, it was all staticky and... Yeah, that was us, Andy. That was Netflix. Look, our computers can detect depression symptoms via viewing habits and instant watch selections. So we were alerted when you finished watching Charmed. N nobody has ever watched that many episodes of Charmed. Ever. I mean, I don't have a lot going on right now. I mean, I, I, my dog just... Okay, I, I thought I might catch up on some shows. Andy, Denial isn't just a river in Egypt, okay? It's also the title of about 11 films in our Lifetime Presents Women Under Pressure series starring Dana Delaney. Look, Cammie, can I... I think I just... You know what? Let's just take a closer look at your cue, shall we? Um, okay. You got a lot of Mark Harmon movies here. Um... <laughs> And then, see, I see that after you watched Beaches, you watched everything in the suggested category because you watched Beaches. That's not good, Andy. Okay. All right, I know. Oh, boy. What? Frasier? I think it's Frasier. It's... Care to tell me again how you are doing okay? Okay, all right, what do I do? All right, first off, I'm deleting most of your cue. Okay, can, can you not do that? You don't have the right to kill yourself with episodes of Grey's Anatomy, Andy. And next thing, we're going to get you into some law and order. Uh, SVU or... Come on! We're not trying to make this worse for you. We'll start with 100 episodes of the original, then we'll slide you into criminal intent. But for God's sake, stop before you get to Jeff Goldblum. Uh, okay. We're going to add some British comedies. And are you ready to rewatch Battlestar Galactica? I've, uh, I've actually haven't seen it. Well, there's your problem. <laughs> All right, I'm moving it to the top of your queue, Andy. I'm, I'm really sorry. Hey, just... you know what? Y you haven't let me down. You let yourself down. <sighs> yeah. Well, Andy, you got a lot of healing to do, so I'm going to let you get to it. 
Now, we're going to be monitoring, and if you feel the urge to add episodes of Private Practice or King of Queens, you just give me a call, okay? Thank you, Cammy. That's what we're here for. That was Andrew Harris and Sean McGrath. You're listening to Livewire Radio, and if you just tuned in, that's unfortunate, because you just missed Andrew Harris singing the best of bread in character as the Japanese Ricardo Montalban. No worries, you can catch it in the podcast, and there's still more to come. Stick around for author Pamela Druckerman, documentary filmmaker Brian Lindstrom, comic Ian Carmel, and more from Sally Ford and The Sound Outside. We'll be right back. Our next guest is a documentary filmmaker who has told the stories of the disenfranchised, the mentally ill, and the addicted. His last film, Finding Normal, followed longtime addicts as they got out of detox and tried to rebuild their lives. His newest documentary tells the story of James Chassie, a man who suffered from schizophrenia, who was tackled by a Portland police officer on the street in 2006 and died in police custody. The film covers James's life, the incident, and the ensuing court case, and apparent police cover-up. Among other things, the film illustrates issues with our current mental health system and how James's life could have been saved if the police officers involved had the training and awareness required to deal with their increased encounters with the mentally ill. Please welcome Brian Lindstrom to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you, Courtney. Good it's to great be here. to have you, yeah. Can you talk about who James Chassie was? Well, most of us probably heard about James Chassie through the headline, 42-year-old man with schizophrenia dies in police custody. And what Alien Boy, the film, really tries to do is to uh, get into the depths of Jim's life and try to reveal his humanity and uh, you know, explore the, the challenge, the grace, the beauty of his life and to show that, like all of us, he had a life and it had meaning. He was artistic and bright kid, and schizophrenia hit him right after high school? Uh, kind of in his mid-teens. Um, you know, one of the, the real bright spots of Jim's life was that he came of age uh, at a kind of golden era of, of punk music in Portland, and he was really embraced by the punk community. It was so kind of wonderful to tell that part of his story. He really found a, a home of sorts, and two different punk bands wrote songs about him. The Wipers, uh, who Nirvana cites as you know, such a big influence on them, wrote Alien Boy about Jim. That's where the film gets its title. And then the Neo Boys uh, wrote Nothing to Fear about mm-hmm. Jim. One thing that really struck me uh, as I talked to people who knew Jim uh, was all the 
you know, the notes, the letters, the photos, all the keepsakes that they, they kept all these years later. I mean, how many of us have had a song written about them? Jim had two. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it was interesting to hear uh, the lyrics of Alien Boy in terms of what ha- ended up happening to him. Yeah, strangely prophetic. Can you remember a couple of them? The... I'll, I'll sing that now. Oh, yeah? Um, uh, go and grab your gun, got him on the run, because he's an alien, they shoot, but they don't understand. Yeah. That's the basic gist of it. Um, so I-, I wanted to play a clip, and this is just a, uh, this is a clip of uh, the trailer for the, for the film, and really gives, I think, a, a, a very quick overview. It was an unexpected moment of chaos in a very orderly area of town. Officers were doing their job. They were trying to catch somebody. They have no idea what they're facing when they're trying to chase this person. An officer screaming, he tried to bite me, he's trying to bite me. And that's when I saw knees to the chest, punches to the face. Here's been this tussle, there's a man on the ground, he's unconscious, you're standing around talking. If you're talking about a kick or a blow, then you would think of one or two ribs being fractured. But a whole line of ribs are fractured. I thought he was dead, and I didn't... I definitely remember thinking that it wasn't, that it was weird that they didn't put him in the back of the ambulance. The most egregious uh, case of police misconduct that I've ever seen. And that last voice was the Chassis family lawyer. Tom Steenson. Yes. Yeah, Tom, Tom Steenson. Um, so when you, when you approach a story like this that seems sort of cut and dry, do you still try to approach it in an objective way and, and be open to whatever the answer might be? Absolutely. I mean, we knew going into the film that our challenge was to humanize Jim, to kind of, uh, you know, create an arc for his life and to have the audience uh, become engaged with him. And then the other part of the film was really just a kind of measured, uh, open look at the facts of the case and what happened that day through the voices of the participants, the eyewitnesses. And in many ways, uh, that part of the film is just an attempt to give uh, people voice, uh, you know, so that they could share how what they saw impacted them. Yeah. Well, and and there are obviously conflicting stories. You know, the police tell a different story about what happened, and they made up stories about James and drug use. How much of your job as a documentary filmmaker is to essentially be a human lie detector? There's kind of a couple different ways to approach a story like this. One is the kind of, uh, you know, traditional he said, she said, if you will, where, you know, it's always like one point of view and then an opposing. Um, examining this case, uh, you know, just the preponderance of, of this kind of, you know, relentless chain of unfortunate decisions uh, on, the half, on behalf of the police, you know, I couldn't deny that. Yeah. You know, and I felt like I just really needed to, to tell that story and to let the facts speak for themselves. We didn't go into this film with any kind of anti-police bent. We really just wanted to examine Jim's life and also just really get to the bottom of what happened that day and why did Jim die and, you know, how can we make sure this never happens again? Yeah. Well, there's this, there's this moment in the film. Uh, Officer Humphreys uh, ran after James and tackled him to the ground. He's a 240-pound police officer, and James looked to be like maybe a 170. He was very 145 guy. pounds. 145. There's a photograph that someone has taken, and James is on the ground hogtied. This is the moment that everything could have changed but didn't. Why did he not go in that ambulance, and why did he end up going to jail? Because he was very injured at that point. He was. He was screaming to the uh, female paramedic on the site, please don't leave me, no, no, don't go. Um, the officers at the site decided to 
transport him to the jail where uh, jailhouse nurses refused to admit him because he was having seizures. Um, the officers did not uh, share with either the paramedics on site or the jailhouse nurses um, that they had tackled James, that they had kicked him, that they had punched him, that they had tased him, that he had passed out, that he appeared to not be breathing at times. Um, so there was this terrible omission of information and there was also then this incredibly uh, disturbing decision on the police at the scene to uh, describe Jim as a crackhead and to fabricate breadcrumbs that were in Jim's backpack as if they were crack cocaine. And he was not on any drugs. In fact, he wasn't even on his drugs for schizophrenia. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Um, so May I talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Uh, he was not on, on his meds, which... Um, as some of you may know, who have loved ones uh, who suffer from schizophrenia, is a you know a kind of part of the disease, and uh, because he wasn't on his meds, uh, his um, case manager at the hotel where Jim lived uh, reported this, and they did what's called a welfare visit, where a mental health professional from Project Respond uh, is accompanied by a Portland police officer, and they go to the person and they try to find out what's going on. So they. They paid this welfare visit two days uh, before Jim's death. And when Jim uh, finally opened his door and saw that there was a policeman there, the first thing he said was, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. He had a lifelong fear of the police. Um, Jim fled when he saw the policeman ran out, and um, the project respond person asked the police, the officer there, to report Jim as having mental illness so that if he was ever... Uh, encountering the police again, they would know that information about him and it would hopefully you know, influence the way they dealt with him. Well, the officer never filed that report. And had that report been filed, you know, the officers at 13th and Everett where they encountered Jim would have gotten that information that he was mentally ill and then maybe this whole thing would not have happened. Well, it seems like people talk a lot about how our, our mental health system is broken. The Justice Department had these findings saying Portland police have a problem with excessive force. And Police Chief Mike Reese responded by saying, over the last decade, we've had a dynamic shift from responding to criminal issues to responding to social disorder. And we have not been adequately prepared for the changing circumstances in our community related to mental health. Do you think there's any validity in that defense? In this case, no. I do not. Jim was actually a success story of the mental health system. He lived with severe and persistent mental illness, and he maintained his independence. He avoided institutionalization, and he had a life. You know, he had he had lunch with his mother. He, yeah. you know, was a, an uncle to his niece. He he had family and he had friends. The only thing that Jim was doing that day that caused uh, Officer Humphreys to notice him was that he was shuffling back and forth, and that was what started this whole. Chase that the police investigation later revealed should never have taken place according to their own rules. And a question I have, uh, and maybe other people have it after seeing the film, is, you know, I have a concern. Did the officers involved get the mental health treatment that they needed yeah. after this terrible event? I mean, you see that two of the key people of the officers in the film went on to have road rage incidents. And I just, you know, I think that deserves to be looked at. Yeah. There was a lot of heartbreaking footage in this. We, we got to see um, James uh, being brought into uh, the 
the jail cell, um, and it was at one point Chris Humphreys was laughing when he was telling the story of tackling him. And it was difficult for me to watch that once. You had to watch this footage over and over again as you edited. What, how did that affect you to work on this? Well, you know, it's, first of all, it's a huge responsibility. You know, I mean, here's, here's Jim Chassie, and, you know, the, the task of the film is to tell how he lived and how he died. Um, and so it was really, uh, you know, editor Andrew Saunderson and I watching that footage over and over again and trying to figure out, you know, what is the right amount of seeing that yeah. For the, so that it both has impact, but then doesn't become, you become desensitized to it. You know, it was a challenge. Did you ever become desensitized to it? Was it ever not horrible for you to watch? No, it was always horrible and, um, and just so heartbreaking and, and so completely avoidable. And, yeah. and then it's also, you know, it's just so painful to watch the elapsed time. In other words, the, the jailhouse nurses refused to admit Jim, saying that he needed to go... Uh, to a hospital emergency room, and, but then instead of calling an ambulance and driving, you know, to the nearest emergency room, the officers waited six and a half minutes before they carried Jim to their police car parked in the Sally Port, and then they drove without lights or sirens to the furthest emergency room possible, Portland Adventist. Didn't um, they talk for about ten minutes in the garage, just chatted with someone? Well, they talked with a, a Sergeant Gonzalez uh, for a while in the garage. I don't know. I think it was like maybe a minute and a half. But yeah. th- there's more time that, you know, I'll, you add up all those minutes and it costs Jim's life. What have people suggested in terms of solutions to this issue? Were you able to speak to anybody who felt like they had a solution? I think the challenge, you know, you, you make a film like Alien Boy and then it's like suddenly you're supposed to have the answers, yeah. you know? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't have those folks. Yeah. Um, but I think it's okay to start at the point of, like, something's terribly wrong. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's what this film shows, that it is something is just terribly wrong. And I'm hoping that the film starts conversations. Last night was the premiere, and I had the privilege of introducing Mayor uh, Charlie Hales to, to Jim's dad. And, they the, had and a he's very, the current mayor of, of Portland. And they had a very open uh, dialogue just about, like, what, you know, what could change this could never happen again. And I, I just hope that a lot of those conversations take place. And, and one thing I think that the film also shows is just how unsatisfactory this whole process was for everyone. The city spent $3.5 million uh, defending and then settling the chassis lawsuit. And I don't think anyone feels like much was accomplished. Uh, you know, imagine a, you know, a better world where you know, maybe the family got to sit with the officers and just have a conversation and, and explain, you know, express their outrage and their desire that, you know, other people should never lose their son. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, the movie is just stunning. You can go to alienboy.org yes. if you want more information about the film and, and where it might be showing near you. I wanted, before you go, what some people may not know about you is that you are the husband of Cheryl Strayed. She's the author of Wild and Tiny Beautiful Things. Um, can I and, just interrupt here? Yeah. I, I can't live this charade any longer. I wrote Wild. <laughs> and I feel so free now that I can share that with you. So how do you feel about Reese Witherspoon playing you in the movie? I think she can do it. You think she can hack it? <laughs> well, what's interesting is that in her, she writes the Dear Sugar column, and she's told some pretty personal stories about you. What is it like as a documentary filmmaker to be the subject of the story instead of the storyteller? You know, I think sometimes we do things in life just because we would look like such an ass if we didn't do them. <laughs> and, you know, it would be pretty hypocritical of me, you know, to make a film like Finding Normal where people let me into the most kind of, you know, intimate, challenging, 
uh, parts of their life, it would be you know, hypocritical of me then to say to Cheryl, oh, you can't write about that. Yeah. You know, so I just feel like it's you know, part of the cost of doing business. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, the film is wonderful. Uh, the film is Alien Boy, The Life and Death of James Chassie. Uh, the director is Brian Lindstrom. Thanks so much for joining us, Brian. Thank you, Courtney. Really appreciate it. You can find more information about the film and where you can see it at alienboy.org. And ladies and gentlemen, once again, Sally Ford in The Sound Outside. soul from the top of my head to the tips of my toes telling you darling you're making me weak making me tired unable to speak I never knew something so good could be bad what you have got it's the best that I've had so won't you please show me again and again make my head twirl Make my head spin
Sally Ford and the sound outside. Livewire is brought to you in part thanks to Ergo Depot, who would like to point out that desks are pretty boring, unless it's a desk which transforms into a crime-fighting robot when you're not looking. But that seems like a pretty unlikely scenario. Ergo Depot would like to help with a line of ergonomic sit-stand desks that move at the touch of a button. In many ways, it's like a crime-fighting robot, except that it's mainly designed to help your circulation. More information can be found at ergodepot.com. That's Saturdays in March, only at Bob Staley's Tire Expo on Highway 14. It's 4.30 on your drive home. This is Pound Cake with you on 106.7 The River. And as promised, I've got the Coachella 2013 lineup for you. Get ready, because here it is. Wu-Tang Clan, Red Hot Chili Peppers, New Order, Modest Mouse, Lou Reed, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, Father John Misty, Beardy Man, Log Face, Silent Fridge, John Ford Mustang, Laser Force 2079, The Sorrow Factory and Wishbone, Foreign Sign Language, Martika, Porridge, Dr. Funkenstein's Weekend Funk Machine featuring Funky Wesley, Deaf Babies, Pillows, Cellophane Party Death Wish, The Tickle Family, Old Fudge, Ben Vereen, Wax Paper, Quiet Pudding, The Honeycomb Challenge, Suicidal Wednesdays and The Lampoon, Table, Buckshot, Stevens and Magoo, Mark Harmon, Blood Quartet, Zesty Calhoun and the Chocolate Chip Kid with special guest DJ Doink, Sabretooth, Azerbaijan, The Kaiser Chiefs, San Berdu, Orange Crayon, and Back Teen and Skin Machine featuring James Taylor. Next hour will be the 17th caller when you hear this. And you'll win two tickets to Coachella, courtesy of your friends here at 106.7 The River. Now, back to another two-hour block of mashups of Dave Matthews Band and Edie Burkell and New Bohemians. So Xander Harris. Thanks, Xander. Our next guest, a freelance journalist and author, was a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal for five years before quitting to write about lust, which the Wall Street Journal has never recognized the existence of. <laughs> and lust, it's a lust for a particularly sexy money market account with a no interest ceiling that allows up to six transfers a month. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Marie Claire, and the Washington Post, and she's been a commentator on NPR, The Today Show, and BBC Women's Hour, among others. She is the author of three books, Lust in Translation, about regional rules of infidelity, Bringing Up Babay, One American Mother Discovers the Wisdom of French Parenting, wherein she reveals the secret behind France's astonishingly well-adjusted and well-behaved children, and her newest, Babay Day by Day, which squishes all of that knowledge into smaller digestive bites. Tonight, she brings us her ruminations on raising her half-American, half-English children in Paris. Please welcome Pamela Druckerman to Livewire. Since I wrote a book about being an American who's raising kids in Paris... The question I've been asked the most is whether they're growing up to be American or French. 
Of course, I hope I'm cooking up little hybrids who have the best of both cultures. But in practice, it's complicated. They absorb the French part naturally. They go to French schools. They have French friends. Making them into Americans is trickier. How exactly do you make Americans out of children who don't live in the United States? What does it being an American even mean? This question is made all the more difficult by the fact that I'm married to an Englishman. So all the Americanizing falls to me. He buys them books about Henry VIII. In school, they're going to learn about Napoleon and Charles de Gaulle. If I don't tell them who Abraham Lincoln is, they might never find out. And that's just history. What about state capitals and regional accents and tuna melts and tacos? Since moving to Paris, I realized that as an American, I grew up learning survival skills that French kids generally don't have. I'm not particularly outdoorsy, but thanks to Girl Scouts and American summer camps, I can fire a bow and arrow, write a capsized canoe, and turn my jeans into a flotation device. <laughs> Should I be arming my kids with these skills too? The good thing is, when you're the ambassador of Americanness for your family, you get to edit, especially with holidays. I immediately decided, Thanksgiving, that's way too much cooking. I won't even mention it to them. <laughs> and I've let the 4th of July sort of drift into Bastille Day. I've realized that the part of American culture I most want to transmit to my kids is more ineffable. It's that American spirit of optimism and confidence, that quality that makes us become entrepreneurs and win Nobel Prizes, our belief that anything is possible and that we can reinvent ourselves. In other words, I want my kids to believe in happy endings and hope. The main way I convey this is by reading them American children's books. The typical story in these books is... There's a problem, the characters grapple with that problem, and then the problem gets fixed. The spoon wishes she were a fork because she can't pick up spaghetti, but then she realizes that she can pick up ice cream. Life gets better, she learns and grows. <laughs> the French are not an optimistic people. They don't really do hope. Sure, they have universal health care and pain au chocolat, but the conventional wisdom in France is that not only aren't things getting better, they're actually getting worse. This is the culture that brought us the line, hell is other people. In the French children's books my kids bring home from school, there's usually a problem. The characters grapple with the problem. The problem is briefly resolved, and then it comes back again. There are rarely any moments of personal transformation. That bossy little girl at the beginning of the book, she's bossy at the end of the book, too. This French narrative structure is probably closer to how real life actually unfolds. I can see how my belief that people, or specifically boyfriends, can change turned my 20s into something of a lost decade. A bit of French pragmatism wouldn't have been so bad. I definitely like my kids to eat like the French. In daycares in Paris, the kids eat sophisticated four-course meals, pureed mushrooms followed by salmon and a lemon dill sauce, and then blue cheese, even at home, my kids often ask for camembert at the end of a meal. <laughs> On one trip back to America, someone made them macaroni and cheese from a box, and they whispered to me, Mommy, that's not cheese. <laughs> I've realized I can input them with all the Americana I want, but there's no telling what will come out. After we read a book about Neil Armstrong's walk on the moon, my daughter just said, It's too bad he's not French. <laughs> Lately, we've been reading about Martin Luther King. 
When I told my kids I was coming to America to make a speech, my daughter said, oh, like I have a dream? I said, no. When I act too American, my kids back away from me. The list of things I currently mustn't do in Paris includes singing on the street, going down the slide in the park, and wearing grungy gray sweatshirts even around my own house because my kids will say, Mom, you look terrible. I also can't be too chatty with strangers. In line at a French supermarket the other day, I made an offhand comment to a woman woman next to me, and she gave me the cold shoulder. Afterwards, I told my daughter, you know, sometimes French people can be weird. And she said, no, mommy, you're weird. (laughs) Then there's the English husband problem. We speak English at home, of course, and somehow two of our kids have American accents, but the third one sounds completely British. Literally, two say tomato and one says tomato. He wears trousers and calls me mummy. In his defense, my husband didn't do this on purpose. His only patriotic ambition has been to instill the kids with a deep sense of irony. This has actually worked. They like to sit at the dinner table and chant one of the chapter titles from my book, French Children Don't Throw Food, then toss some carrots across the table. (laughs) Another problem is that the longer I live abroad, the less in touch I am with what America is really like. I've caught myself becoming one of those people who watches CNN and then says, we can't go to New York, it's too dangerous. (laughs) The bits of American pop culture that do reach us often go through a French filter. So my sons run around the house in superhero costumes playing Spiderman and Star Wars. For a while, much of my daughter's English came from princess movies, so instead of asking whether I liked her outfit, she'd say, am I the fairest? (laughs) Although I want to Americanize my kids, I get irritated when I catch French people treating them like Americans. Like at my daughter's dance class one day, the teacher told all the little girls to lie flat on the floor like a crepe, but then she turned to my daughter and said, like a pancake. When I meet adults who were raised in France but with American parents, I always ask them, which identity is stronger? Are you French or American? And they almost always say, it depends. They feel French when they're in America and American when they're in France. I'm not sure what they are either. Often they'll speak perfect English, except that they'll have a tell. Instead of saying 30, they'll say 30 because they can't make the TH sound. Or they'll seem thoroughly American in person, but then they'll send me an email with second grade spelling. Or they'll get everything right, but at some point I'll hear them speak French with a full French accent and gestures and mouth shape, and I'll realize that I really only know part of them. I don't want to raise fake Americans. I want to erase all my kids' tells and make them real Americans. I saw that this was a losing battle recently when my son was opening a birthday present and he just spontaneously said, oh la la. (laughs) In the end, I've realized it's just not up to me. I can't decide the proportions of my children's identities like I'm baking a cake. Yes, I want them to be hopeful pragmatists who eat their vegetables and start companies, but they might end up being existentialists who need a spell check and can't survive in the wild. They probably won't ever belong anywhere completely. But as my husband keeps assuring me, without irony, they'll belong a little bit in lots of places. And that's probably just as good.
are bringing up Babay. One American mother discovers the wisdom of French parenting and Babay day by day. You're listening to Livewire Radio. We'll be right back. For Dear Livewire, science, pop culture, relationship advice, you have questions, and we have answers that may or may not be correct. Our live audience has written their queries and sent them to the stage, and now they will be answered enthusiastically and borderline accurately by our cast and guest. Accuracy of answers is not guaranteed, assumed, or even possible, because we're only human, born to make mistakes, and also quote human league lyrics. Guys. Uh, Zoe asks, if you could combine any two animals, like Napoleon Dynamite's lion slash tiger, which is called Liger, which would you combine, and what would your hybrid be called? I would combine a whale shark and a sparrow hawk. <laughs> and it would be called a... a sh God, this is really tough. A sparrow shark whale hawk. <laughs> Thank you for your question, Zoe. Thank you, Andrew Harris. Sally Ford. Hi. So Anonymous asked, who invented bacon? Well, actually, I'm going to say that Jeff Munger from my band invented bacon. <laughs> and now he's going to come up and tell you about it. Thank you. In the recent year or two, we've gotten to travel around the world a little bit, and what other people call bacon isn't quite the same as American bacon. The Canadian bacon, we all know, is not real bacon. And uh, in France, they don't really have that same cut of meat. And when you go to London, it involves, a, I think, a larger section of the pig. But uh, I think it's an American... Tradition. America invented bacon. Jeff Munger. Ian Carmel. Stella asks, what is the most dangerous activity that people do for fun? And I imagine it's traveling to hell to fetch the insanely catchy yet soulless music for their debut album, Some Nights. That's a joke about the band Fun. The real answer... The real answer is a two-way tie between the game Truth or Dare or Knife Fight and Charcour, which is parkour, but with sharks. 
Ian Carmel. Thank you, Ian. That's Dear Livewire. Thanks for all your great questions and thanks to our guests. Dear Livewire is brought to you by New Belgium Brewery who present Beer School. Have you always wondered what an Imperial IPA is? It's a, it's a more intense IPA with a hoppier flavor and a higher alcohol content. It is what other IPAs pretend to be at their high school reunion. Coincidentally, New Belgium has just released its new rampant Imperial IPA. More information can be found at newbelgium.com. And now, one last time, please welcome Sally Ford and the sound outside. Ian Carmel has been watching the show from the sidelines and he's been taking notes the whole hour so he's here to give us a wrap up of all we've covered in the night so please welcome Ian Carmel to the stage Sally Ford
Lord should have been a way to cross rivers in the Oregon Trail computer game. Checking into the Sally Ford Clinic would be way better than checking into the Betty Ford Clinic. But I have a feeling it would only make your alcoholism worse. I, uh... Netflix jokes are hilarious. Uh, Battlestar Galactica is like born-again Christianity for nerds. I, I, like... You haven't seen it, you need to see it. You have to see it. You should see it, it will save you. Uh, <laughs> these are just some questions for Pamela Druckerman, really quick. If, if your kids never find out about Abraham Lincoln, who will they think killed all of the vampires? <laughs> also, uh, is it true that there is a place in France where the naked ladies dance? And if that's real, is there a hole in the wall? And if there is a hole in the wall, can the men see it all? And if so, what do they do afterwards? <laughs> and finally, this question submitted from the uh, George Bush administration, why do your children hate freedom? <laughs> Those have been my thoughts after enjoying Live Wire. Thank you for your time. Ian Carmel. That is our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests, Pamela Druckerman, Brian Lindstrom, Ian Carmel, and Sally Ford in the sound outside. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Cultural Trust, and listeners like you find people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister and performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, and Ben Coleman. Sound effects and direction by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Matt King. Show theme is written by our house band and Courtney Vondrele. Photography by Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. 
Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.